The year this week's album was released, British film-going audiences were asked to consider the questions of the age. What was their favorite color? What is the capital of Assyria? What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? That's right, the fellows in Monty Python pulled the pin on their most holiest of hand grenades and lobbed it into English theaters. Darius Rucker, who I'm going to call Hootie for the rest of this segment, got in big legal trouble for paying homage to one of the tracks from this week's album. I don't know if an entire verse copied almost word for word qualifies as homage, and evidently this week's artist didn't either. Hootie settled the issue out of court for a large sum of money. And speaking of large sums of money, the artist in question recently sold his over 600 song catalog to Universal for an undisclosed sum that is estimated to be around $300 million. He can't help it if he's lucky. This week's artist is Bob Dylan. The album is Blood on the Tracks, released in 1975. Today on Two Dudes and Tunes. Folks, you're listening to Two Dudes and Tunes, the podcast where two dudes ramble on about albums that are close to their hearts. My name is Chris Robinson, and by a simple twist of fate, my co-host is Wood Johnson. Wood, the times, they are a-changing. How are you doing, man? Howdy, Chris. I'm doing pretty great, man. Been a been an eventful week. Uh, I'm getting ready to hit the road again for my job and do inventory, which basically means... I'll be driving about 4,000 miles over the next, you know, 10 days. And uh, the the wheels will be turning on the school bus. Uh, a lot of uh, clipboard and pen action going on. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I'm definitely one of those people with a stapler. They switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much. Oh, great. <laughs> Hopefully nobody steals it. You're going to have to uh, blow up the place. It's burned this place down, and I will. My, my paycheck. Oh, my is paycheck. That, it's, <laughs> it's been a long time since <laughs> I've seen that movie. The thing I think constantly at work about my coworkers, coworkers is, uh, what would you say you do around here? <laughs> John McGinley is a national treasure. You realize, of course, it's your attention to detail that impresses me most. Oh, man, that guy is so funny. Well, so is that all there is to this week is just work? I, I No judgment. Like, things have been crazy for everybody lately, I'm sure. But anything else going on in in the uh, wood sphere? Uh, no, I mean, I'm taking a little bit of vacation the end of this week to kind of get my house in order. We've got uh, some company coming over on Sunday night for... Uh, a group that I've been uh, trying to join a, a club. And so we're having a, a group over to talk with us about the club. And so got to get the house looking less COVID ready and more guest ready. So that's yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah. As long as this club you're joining isn't like essential oils or like, Hey man, makeup, pyramid schemes wear. work for the people at the top. That's all I can say. <laughs> Are, are you starting one? Is I'm going to become an MLM. Me? Oh, I, you're going to be down a host <laughs> if you do that. No, sir. Good. How about you, man? What's new with you? Well, uh, so the big thing 
this week that um, I really enjoyed was me and my friend Justin, who I've mentioned before, are getting together and practicing every week now. Uh, we've kind of gotten to the point where we've figured out our schedules. And so it's always like a real pleasant hang. One of us uh, will buy dinner and the other person brings beer. We just kind of sit, eat dinner, and then we get to like playing through our songs. Uh, we have eight songs finished. And we've got a couple of them that we're like kind of working on and doing some co-writing. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned the name of the band, but uh, it's The Long Route. Mm -hmm. You know, like going the long way to somewhere. Um, so, yeah, that's really, that was like the big thing. Yesterday, uh, it was actually nice and not like an Arctic blast outside. Uh, so we ate dinner on the porch in front of the chimney with like a fire in it. And it was like, wow, it was so good. That's awesome, man. Uh, the weather has been phenomenal. I've spent the last couple of days pretty much outside for, for work and uh, cannot ask for better weather. So really excited about that. Yeah. Today I will, I will take a moment to complain as all good West Texans must about the wind. It was so nice for most of the day today. And then it just became like an ungodly sandstorm outside. Like, I feel like I came home and had like sand caked over my eyes. Are we talking and like, like Wizard of Oz? Better get undercover, Sylvester. There's a storm blowing up a whopper. Just speaking the vernacular of the peasantry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or like anything from the David Lynch film Dune. I don't like sand. So, like, so now you're seeing in Technicolor. Yes, yes. In te well, if Technicolor means orange, <laughs> then yes, Technicolor. Nice. What are you listening to this week? So uh, this week's listening for me actually came from some research I was doing for the show. There's a podcast that the Consequence of Sound uh, group that they put out called The Opus, where they take a month to focus on albums and blood on the tracks was their first album and the hosts it's three women. And so they approach some of their content from like a feminist point of view. And they brought up the singer songwriter I had never heard of called Buffy St. Marie. She's an indigenous Canadian American singer songwriter. And it was listening to her 1969 album illuminations mm -hmm. and Man, it is a trip. So she was like real ahead of the curve on music technology. Uh, that album kind of tanked because she used a synthesizer in 1969. She was super ahead of the curve. Wow. Um, yeah. And so the album is really cool because like a lot of it is real familiar. Like it's the late 60s. She's a singer songwriter. Uh so those are kind of some familiar things to expect, but she works in the synthesizer stuff like really well. Um, and her, her lyrics are also like same tier, I would say as Bob Dylan, very adventurous, very poetic, uh, very motivated by the social causes that she was, you know, like spurred on by. So, 
I highly recommend that if you want something just real interesting and kind of off the beaten path to listen to mm-hmm. Illuminations by Buffy St. Marie. It's really an interesting listen. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Well, uh, before we get into today's album, just want to remind everybody, please, please, please go ahead, rate and leave a review on whatever podcatcher you use. Also, word of mouth. Uh, you know, I'm a musician. I should have been pushing word of mouth from Jump, but I forgot about it because I'm new at this. <laughs> so tell your friends. If you're enjoying it, tell your friends. We could really use any um, any kind of guerrilla networking that you would like to do for us. Absolutely. And if you'd like to contact us about anything, Uh, that we've said on the pod or have anything useful to add to the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a message at uh, two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at two dudes and tunes. We also have a uh, Facebook page that I believe Chris is going to be managing for us kind of coming up here shortly. So hit us up there, give us a like and uh, interact with us. We'd love to, uh, to talk with you guys and show you some of the stuff we've got going behind the scenes. All right, Chris, Blood on the Tracks, January 20th, 1975, Bob Dylan. You ready to do this thing? Absolutely. Let's do it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Bob Dylan and like my personal experience with his music, because for most of my life, Bob Dylan was kind of a punchline for bad music. And I know that sounds really terrible, but like I was brought up on a lot of, um, a lot of bop basically. So like jazz from the forties and fifties, a lot of Dave Brubeck, um, a lot of Miles Davis before he started doing like a ton of drugs and getting real out there. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really discover Bob Dylan until like honestly post-college uh, when I moved to Lubbock, I was sort of casting around for people to write and play music with. And one of the guys that plays drums at my church, he and I kind of hit it off. We just, you know, have some of the same interests or whatever. And so we got coffee and kind of chatted about music. And he suggested this album, among others, you know, we were just chatting about influences or whatever. And this album really stuck with me. Uh, Me and this friend, like our lives have just kind of diverged paths as lives do. You know, you get busy, you get married, you get different jobs and just kind of move out of the same social circles. But this album really stuck with me. Um, And, you know, I've been in Lubbock five years and I've spent five years on and off digesting this album. Uh, it's really stuck with me and really endeared me to Bob Dylan's music. Uh, whereas previously I kind of assumed like, oh, I'd never get into that guy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my story. This, I, we've talked a little bit about Dylan. This isn't your first go around on the Bob Dylan train. What is your experience with his music and this album? So this album has been a challenge for me. Let's just state that like right up front. Uh, you struggled with George Strait last week. I struggled with this this week. Um, 
I enjoy Bob Dylan and I think he's a phenomenal musician. So I'm going to start there. I think he's a phenomenal storyteller. He is exhausting to listen to, (laughs) um, to process the message that he's saying and what he's trying to get out there. Yeah. It's just a lot. And so it feels like you got to sit down and like write out word for word, everything he's saying to find the meaning in it. And you know, you can understand it. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't help when you go do like an internet search of his music, because just like with Pink Floyd, everything that he's ever written has been so thoroughly documented and opinion pieced that you'll walk away even more confused than you started, Uh, which is what makes him kind of a tough sell to me, especially in an album format. Um, That said, you know, we kind of teased at the end of last episode when we picked this one that this is probably the most accessible Bob Dylan ever really was. Like this was him being as mainstream as he's ever going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all of that being said, it was a lot of work to listen to this album for me personally this week. It took a lot of attention from me and a lot of really thinking through what was going on. And I think that's a good thing. Um, we can talk about that in the reviews later, but I think the idea of having to stretch my mind and work around it is a good thing, but it's hard to put it in and just enjoy it. If you get what I'm saying. Oh, I absolutely agree. My, my path into this album was really through a couple songs and it wasn't until kind of doing research about this album that I really got to the point where I felt like I was connecting with all of it mm-hmm. or most of it. Um, and that's the thing. Like, I, I think part of the reason my family, you know, would occasionally just kind of joke about it is because like the conventional thing about music that you look for is a pleasing timbre to a voice mm-hmm. and some skill in singing. <laughs> and Bob Dylan doesn't have those things. <laughs> like he, he's a, I've never seen him live, but I imagine he is a good performer or at the very least is captivating Mm -hmm. in some way. But as far as the singing goes, like it really is an acquired taste. Um, And, you know, his lyrics too kind of like have a reputation for being like a little dense and a little like kind of out there. Mm-hmm. So I, I can totally understand your trepidation at like having to dip a toe in the Dylan pool. Well, in, in the past, our conversations have revolved around individual songs, things that I've had time to really dig into and really feel like I have some ownership of the material. Yeah. So one song that isn't on this album, but is probably in my top 10 all time songs is Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. Because yeah, it's just yeah. such a beautiful song in, on top of being such a beautiful story. So mm-hmm. it's it's when it's the longer exposure and after a couple of tracks, I just need a break kind of thing. And to answer the question that you asked like five minutes ago and I didn't answer, my first experience <laughs> with this album, uh, I have a younger brother who's about 13 months younger than me. And we grew up really close, being that close in age. We kind of had the same interests. And mm-hmm. he was really into guitar and really into music. Uh, when he was like 14 years old, 
Uh, he got rid of his bed and had a couch moved into his bedroom so he could have his guitars and everything in his bedroom. And so that was like his sanctuary. And that, uh, that for- is, so just to interrupt real quick. So listeners, myself and Wood's brother, who I, I'm assuming for privacy purposes, you're like not dropping his name on the world at the moment. Yeah, um, we may have him yeah. on this podcast one day. We need to because he and I were friends. Well, still are. Um, and that like does not surprise me one bit. He, <laughs> that he was in like, high school, out he put, with the bed. Yeah. Well, and in high school, in he guitars. played guitar like nine, 10 hours a day. Like it was yes. nonstop all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, really, really a, a talented musician on top of all of that. Like, yes. Uh, but my first exposure to this album, he went through a phase where he really loved Bob Dylan and he really loved Jimi Hendrix for obvious reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. two, a great, two great musicians, two great guitar players. And my dad asked him one day, why do you like Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan so much? Like, why is that all that I ever hear coming out of your room? <laughs> and he goes, well, dad, um, Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix are really good guitar players. They're mediocre singers at best. And, yeah. uh, and that's why they're my favorite. Cause they've been true to who they are and they've been able to make something out of it. And maybe I have a shot. Hey, and so that was I kind of like your brother's answer. Yeah. Well, and it's <laughs> stuck, that answer is stuck with me. So when I hear music where somebody's being true to who they are doing their own thing and they're making it work for them, I automatically have a large sense of respect for that. So yeah, all that said, it's a tough pill for me to swallow with this album, but I really respect it. And I understand the craftsmanship that's in it. And I do enjoy it in, in bites about, you know, this big, not the whole room at once. Yeah. And, and for listeners, since podcasts is not really a visual <laughs> medium, when he said this big at first, it was little. Like two fingers very close together. And then for this big, it was a much larger chunk. I knew you were going to give me trash about that. I should not have been making eye contact with you when I did that because I wouldn't have done it otherwise. uh, I, uh, I had to call it out only because I know I'm going to make the same mistake at least a billion times. So you're good. Oh, that's great. So part of what I think made this album a little bit, more accessible to me anyway uh, than some of his other work is it's really personal. The uh, things that led him to record this album. So do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the origins of it? Cause it, this, the research for this album was way more interesting than I expected it to be. So this album is really personal for Bob Dylan. This came at a really tough time in his life. His marriage was kind of going through this prolonged uh, disillusion phase where they were growing further and further separate. Um, This was his uh, marriage to Sarah Lowndes. And there were three really major contributing factors to kind of the the slow road to separation for them. Uh, Starting in 1973, uh, they purchased a house in Point Doom, uh, which is in Malibu, California. And uh, they did a bunch of construction projects on it, and it proved to be a really trying project for two of them, just creative differences uh, and how they wanted to do different things with the house. And then in 1974, Dylan was taking art classes from Norman Rabin, 
an artist, uh, and the approach really focused on expressing truth in things the way they are. And Dylan really claimed that this made it hard for him to communicate with his wife, that finding that truth was difficult. Dylan returned to touring in 1975 to promote Blood on the Tracks, uh, but he had been taking a break from touring uh, because of his motorcycle accident in 1966. And so that added a little bit more strain, you know, hitting the road after so many years, kind of being a homebody. Uh, And then during this period of time, uh, he fooled around with a girlfriend or several girlfriends, if you believe the, the common knowledge, and then also got into smoking and drinking. And this eventually led to uh, them filing for divorce in 1977. So here you have a five or six year span of just turmoil and personal uh, unrest in Bob Dylan's life that kind of helped fuel this album. Yeah, the the thing that is interesting to me about the the personal nature of this album is Dylan is constantly refuting like no, I don't I don't use my own life for writing this music. That would be ridiculous. But like his son Jacob has said he can't listen to this album because he hears like what was going on with his parents. Um, And I think it's, it's really, it's remarkably self-evident in the music. You know, that's one of the things that I love about this record is it kind of runs the gamut of relationships, the like turmoil and tumult of love. It's not just the sunshine and roses that you expect from a lot of like, stereotypical love songs and it isn't really just plain old breakup songs either um dylan takes kind of a a lot of different looks at love um like in idiot wind he says you tamed the lion in my cage but it just wasn't enough to change my heart now everything's a little upside down as a matter of fact the wheels have stopped I mean, he gets really cruel in that song, actually. Uh, The chorus of that song, which I'm sure listeners who are like big into Dylan already know what I'm going to say, but idiot wind blowing every time you move your teeth. You're an idiot, babe. It's a wonder that you still know how to breathe. Um, Ouch. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I've I've been listening to this album for five years and just sitting down and reading the lyrics, I was struck like, dude, guy is like bitter, bringing the, yeah, bitter and bringing the thunder. But he also hits some really wistful um, kind of forlorn notes in songs like tangled up in blue and simple twist of fate uh, that are a lot more about, you know, two ships passing in the night as it were. Um, and he even has some uh, some songs that I would consider pretty sympathetic to his experience with Sarah. If you look at a song like Shelter from the Storm, he mm-hmm. says, I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes and thrown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Um He's uh, one of the reviewers I was listening to today in that podcast said 
he's tough but fair. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, like, uh, fair is maybe the wrong word, but he does examine it from all angles. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, that's the thing that I think has really struck me about this album is it gets kind of hailed as like, oh, this is the divorce album. Where it's not really the divorce album. It's about relationships from a time when the relationship that Bob Dylan was in was failing. I think that's a great way to look at this album too. And I'm glad that you brought it up. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, Kind of listening to this album for me this week, I really came across as this is just depressing content Um, kind of all the way across the board. And generally when you hear an album about a relationship, uh, it's at the beginning of a relationship when things are good or there's the hope of love to come or, the love's going strong because that's the kind of music we're used to hearing. And maybe that's one reason this album stands out kind of from the crowd is it's from a very trying time in a person's life. And it is so personal. Yeah, it, it really does explore a lot of darker themes. One of the things that I did not know about this album until doing research about it is that, there were two distinct sessions that this album was pulled from. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, so to, to kind of build on that a little bit, uh, one half of the album was recorded in New York city with a backup band called deliverance to be the session musicians and kind of at a last minute decision right before the album was supposed to be pressed and sent out to everybody, uh, Dylan wasn't happy with it. And so he scheduled a second set of sessions in Minneapolis with a different band and kind of re-recorded some of the tunes. Uh, and that's probably why there's two different textures kind of to this album. Uh, when you listen to uh, like Tangled Up in Blue or Meet Me in the Morning, you've got that full band experience. Uh, and then there's also kind of this solo band experience or solo artist experience uh, like in Simple Twist of Fate or Buckets of Rain. And I bet if we really dug into it, we could probably see where each one of those happened in those two sessions. It probably divides fairly cleanly. Yeah, it was it was really interesting because as I was kind of researching this album, the first few, like, you know, the Wikipedia article, I watched a video that Pitchfork did that was like the four-minute breakdown of this album Mm -hmm. and so the narrative that people kind of commonly know and accept is that in the fall of 74 dylan goes to new york hires a studio like uh or excuse me a session band and gets frustrated with them he's unprepared and just fires them um and then goes at the last minute, re-records a bunch of stuff in Minneapolis. Well, the the truth of the matter is really a lot. Uh, I mean, like all things like this, is both more and less interesting. Um, recently, Bob Dylan and his you know record label or what have you have been releasing bootlegs from the studio you know, 
takes and tracks that didn't get released. And they released, uh, I think it's like a tour. It, it may be like a two disc set of the sessions for blood on the tracks. And, uh, this was released in 2018. It's called more blood, more tracks. And the author of the liner notes, Jeff Slate, um, sat down for an interview with consequence of sound. You know, I mentioned before mm-hmm. for that podcast and, um, the narrative he presents is a little bit more researched and a little bit more nuanced. And so what he said was that Dylan had already recorded 11 songs by the time the session musicians in the New York session, right? Session number one, uh, already had been recorded. Uh, he was going to create more of a solo record in the beginning because he had, he had jumped ship previously in his career from Columbia records, I think, and then come back to them. So he wanted to make a statement. He'd been retired. His last album, uh, planet waves, I think hadn't done very well. And so if you think of it that way, he's got a vision. I mean, he's already recorded 11 songs in relatively short time. And so the backing band, um, as Jeff Slate uh, tells it, they were just the guys that were available. Mm-hmm. And so we're not talking top flight musicians. And if you listen to more blood, more tracks really carefully, you can kind of hear like the band is just not in sync with what his vision was. Uh, there was one track specifically, I can't remember the name of, but the drums are just super out of time. Like not anywhere close to what Dylan is trying to do. Um, and so he'd kind of gotten this album made. There were some test pressings of it made, but it wasn't really the thing that he wanted. I don't think, and I don't, I think Jeff Slate kind of mentions like, Dylan doesn't really do anything he doesn't want to do. So he previewed these tracks for some friends, uh, big music names that we would all recognize. Steven Stills. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure Crosby, Stills, and Nash were there in their entirety. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, uh, but Steven Stills commented to Graham Nash, like kind of after Dylan had showed him these tracks and left the room. Uh, he said, Dylan's a good songwriter, but he's no musician. Ouch. That's the story of my life. No respect. I got no respect at all. Yeah. And, and also, like, if anybody's going to make that crit- criticism, like, Stephen Stills is uniquely qualified because that dude <laughs> is a guitar hero. I love his yes. music. Um, but, you know, like I said, Dylan is not the kind of guy to let anybody talk him into anything. He makes his mind up about things. And the thing you have to remember about recording an album is that it is shooting at a moving target. Like your vision of a thing evolves as you create it. It's Mm -hmm. the same way for writers and directors and things. And so right before the release is the release date of blood on the tracks, Dylan decides I'm going to do something different. He was on vacation in Minneapolis and his brother, was able to hook him up with some musicians in Minneapolis. And they were originally just going to do one track, Idiot Wind. They're going to re-record that. And Dylan liked it. And as artists often do, if something feels good, you just kind of ride that wave for a little bit. 
And so he did. He re-recorded five of the ten tracks on this song with a full band that can keep up with them. And they provide like a really dynamic performance. And so you have this album that is kind of a chimera of these kind of sadder, more brooding solo performances with a little bit of bass and harmonica or some organ or what have you. And then you have these kind of rollicking tunes from the Bob Dylan that we're kind of more familiar with, you know, lots of harmonica and kind of jangly guitars and that kind of thing. So it, it really, it's, it's kind of like wish you were here where it's a thing that you think like, Oh, this should not have worked at all. But at least for me, I mean, I can't speak for you, but for me, it really works because there are these two sides to this thing. There's this push pull of, um, kind of the anger and the sadness represented by the solo stuff. And then kind of another side of that, that is still angry and still sad, but at like one step of a remove where you have kind of this deceptively upbeat full band mm -hmm. stuff. Well, and I think, for me, the last minute stuff works too. I think when I listen to this album and I compare it to some of the other Bob Dylan stuff I've listened to before, one of my first critiques of it was this band or this, this grouping of musicians sounds a lot tighter than Bob Dylan's music normally sounds like. Um, when I generally hear Bob Dylan's music, I think of another 60s hippie musician, Arlo Guthrie, and I picture kind of busking they're just playing and doing their thing and it's just this is kind of stream of consciousness here it comes this is me playing it and this album is very well produced the band is very together throughout it and so hearing i've never listened to more blood more tracks but hearing that the group from minneapolis was a lot tighter and kind of had its act together a little bit more than what comes across in more blood more tracks really makes me a lot happier because that's one of the things I noticed when listening to this album is just how cohesive it is as far as musicians go. You know, it, it really is more cohesive. Um, and if you, uh, I mean, I, I encourage you go ahead and check out more blood, more tracks. There's just like a sampler available mm -hmm. on most streaming services. It's not the like, you know, who knows how many it's probably like 60, like one to two minute clips of these takes of songs. Um, but blood, more blood, more tracks kind of represents a darker, more lopsided record. Um, a lot of the tracks are not only dark in the lyrical content, but also the tone and like the timbre of the whole thing is just is too much. Like it's it's too heavy and it's a lot of fun to listen to those things and kind of check out like, oh, this is the process he went through. Um, but the, the more upbeat arrangements, I think really take a step back and force you to kind of get into it more slowly because it's a little deceptive at first. You think like, Oh, okay, this is like regular old Dylan, but you know, you keep listening to it. The familiarity of it gets to you and you start to listen to the lyrics and realize like, no, Dylan is talking about some real rough, heavy stuff. Um, and so I think that 
I don't, I don't know. It's really, it was really fascinating to me to read about how such a thing could come about in such like disparate, like kind of, it seems like he's going off half cocked, you know? Well, and that's one of the things that I think I struggle with the most from this album. Uh, the more that I think about it is the incongruity between Dylan's tone and the key he kind of sing talks in and records in versus what he's trying to convey generally just the sound of the song even when it's a depressing song comes across as kind of happy uh just because of the way his voice is in general and the way he plays the guitar um even when it's a deeper darker song you've really got to be listening to hear the deeper darker portion of that song uh especially on like the solo type songs uh, where the, you don't have the the downtrodden bass line or the drum to kind of key you in that this is a more downtrodden song. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, Dylan, I think, has always, I mean, obviously he's always considered himself a pretty serious artist and kind of takes himself seriously. Um, and I think that is a little bit what makes him kind of mercurial. He's not a figure like, you know, Dave Grohl, like we've talked about, who is very much, I mean, who knows what kind of personas people put on, but at least with somebody like him, you think like, I know what I'm getting. Like this guy is being pretty straight with me, but with Dylan, his, his work is always sincere, but kind of has a little bit of a, I don't know that a veneer or a kind of like one step of removal from like, this is who I really am. And I, I don't know if that, what do you think? Cause I, I kind of wonder about that. So if you'd asked me a couple of years ago uh, or let's say five years ago, 2015, 2016, if I thought Bob Dylan was being real, I would have told you he's a character that this is a guy who has kind of put this character on for the last 50 years and has put that into his music. I'm a dude a dude disguised as another dude. And that there's no way that that could be the real Bob Dylan. Here in the last six years, uh, kind of stemming from his uh, Nobel Prize in literature, uh, I've come to kind of see that that's probably just who Bob Dylan is. And he's just five degrees off from everybody else. And that's that what I perceived as a character is really him. And that's really what he has to bring to the table. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting how that can kind of drive a wedge between maybe what he's trying to convey and the way you might read it. Because like mm -hmm. you just said, like, I mean, we're, we all I mean, most of us who listen to Bob Dylan know like know what you're going to get. You're going to get yowling basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of like, Whoa, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? Um, like I think of the weird Al tune, Bob. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and like, it's a funny way to pay respect to somebody, but I think weird Al kind of hits the nail on the head, you know? So it makes it hard to parse. Like what is he sad? Or is this like some sort of like drug fueled meditation on the Nixon years? Like what, you know, like what is going on? Well, and I think 
part of that, you know, I think he has a lot in common with Michael Jackson, another artist that we've done on this podcast at this point. You know, Michael Jackson had those verbal tics that were in all of his albums and all of his songs, and it was uniquely Michael Jackson. I feel like that's the same thing that Bob Dylan's got going on. There are those things that are uniquely Bob Dylan, and even if they don't necessarily fit the the tone of the music that he's trying to convey, it's still going to be there because that's who he is. Yeah, and and that's something, if we want to move into the critical reception, that's something that reviewers of the time kind of took him to task for. Um, and the Rolling Stone article. So two different artists or uh, reviewers, excuse me, reviewed this album for the Rolling Stone. And I didn't, I didn't bother digging up the other one because the other one was like, rah, rah, Dylan is the best, which I mean, like I, I agree that I love this album, but kind of the more interesting take on it was John Landau. Uh, he really took Dylan to task about the record's quote unquote, typical shoddiness. Um, he claimed that listeners wouldn't treasure blood on the tracks as much as they would blonde on blonde. Um, and he really, it was interesting. He compared Dylan to a lot of other rock musicians like the who the beach boys and the rolling stones and basically said like look at these people over here they make well-produced like records with tonal clarity yada 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 and this puts dylan at a disadvantage mm-hmm. um and it's interesting to me how like how right he could kind of be but also how wrong because obviously we're still talking about him Definitely. you know yeah um well and, and the other th- oh go ahead no go ahead finish your thought well the other thing i thought was like dude john you are missing the point like when has rock been about super crisp clean production values i mean maybe maybe that's just my perspective from you know coming up and like the early 2000s into the 2010s being a musician and people really loving lo-fi sounds. But like Chuck Berry wasn't making music that was at the height of music production, you know? Like, Well, and this is at a time, you know, this is the 1970s. We're coming out of the 1950s and 60s and early 70s where rock and roll was all about shaking your fist at the man and asserting yourself and your individualism. And you look at a lot of those early mega rock stars in that vein. Uh, We've already mentioned him once on this album, Jimi Hendrix. The guy was at Woodstock 69. And if you listen to like uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience or any of his albums, they are very poorly produced. It's a man putting his heart out there and it's amazing music but to hear John Landau's take on this, it's kind of like you totally missed the bus on what rock has been for the last 20 years at this point when it was released. Uh, and that's really disappointing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. He mentions the beach boys, which that like, if you're talking about like, that's dad rock. And- <laughs> they were dad rock when probably- dad rock started. Yeah. I mean, dad rock one one but the thing about dad rock a lot of dad rock is really well produced. Um, but the rest of the band, like 
the who and the rolling stones like they're notorious for like some real rowdy sounds on their records uh you know like so it was interesting to me that somebody who was reviewing music at that time had such like a tone deaf uh reaction yeah well uh, but to to flip that on it though the Village Voice, Robert Criscow, our favorite reviewer uh, yeah, so far. It seems boy. like he keeps sliding in because uh, he always has yeah, something yeah. really cool to say. Um, he really liked this album. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm going to read a quick quote. He said, by second hearing, its loveliness is almost literally haunting. The prevailing theme of interrupted love recalls adolescent woes. But on the whole, this is the man's most mature and assured record. He gave this rating, uh, this album, an A ranking uh, in the end. So he really thought this was a great album. Yeah, um, it, I I kind of wonder if there's a a reason we coming keep we keep coming back to Robert Criscow because it seems like he had a pretty, at least from what I can remember of all his reviews we've read so far, he had a pretty pretty good bead on like the pulse of things and how they would be remembered and whatnot. And I mean, he's reviewed hundreds of albums, so I'm sure like I can't speak for all of them, but well, I think he has a good bead on the longevity, the underlying what's going to be good about an album. And he kind of comes at it in a way that isn't dispassionate, but it's very analytical. So what about mm-hmm. this works? What about this doesn't work? And when I read his reviews, I don't see a whole lot of the just name calling and the like preconceived notions of who an artist is when he listens to their album. And I think that's one of the things I like most about his reviews in general. Yeah, reviewing is such a a funny thing, too, because uh, we kind of talked about this last week, you know, when I assigned a bunch of numerical values to um to that, uh, all the tracks on the 50 number ones, like I w- who am I? Like, why should anybody <laughs> take my word for it? But I think it's the conversation that is fun. And if you approach it, honestly, like it seems like Robert Criscow does, you, you can at least read a reviewer who's approaching things from that angle and come away with some idea of what the thing is. Even if you need to listen to it yourself and go like, Oh, I loved it. They were an idiot or like, Oh boy, they were right. I shouldn't have blown, you know, my 20 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah, definitely. What did uh, Nick Kent have to say about this? Oh, uh, so NME new music express, which I think I'm pretty sure that's a British publication. I'm not exactly sure. Nobody quote me or at me. Uh, not that you can, cause I don't have a Twitter. Ha ha ha. But they'll find um, you. Yeah. Oh, I know it. I know it. Uh, Nick Kent kind of took the same tack as Landau, uh, but I included his remarks because they were really funny. He said the accompaniments were often so trashy, they sound like practice takes. Uh, And so whether you agree with his opinion or not, he gets 10 out of 10 for sick burns. Ouch. Yeah. Well, speaking of sick burns, <laughs> do you want to uh, give your your review on Blood on the Tracks? Yeah, so I really struggled with my review on this album this week. And 
nobody on the podcast can see the show notes, but I've basically got three lines typed out here because I just didn't know what to say that I haven't already said. It was a lot to bite off and a lot to absorb and really think through. Um, I really do think Bob Dylan in all of musicdom is definitely the person who should have been the first musician to win a Nobel prize, uh, especially in the literature category, because the man is a poet, even if he's got a borderline unbearable voice, uh, <laughs> he's got a great thing to say, great things to say. So with that kind of said, and kind of thinking through the whole kind of tone of this album and the fact that it's so novel in its approach to kind of the bitter end of a relationship, uh, and knowing what he's brought to music just as a whole, I mean, people copy him, they're inspired by him. He is the inspiration for tons of albums out there and tons of musicians out there. Um, thinking in terms of our six string review with six strings being the best album ever made one string being uh, pretty terrible. Um, this album isn't for me. I think you could take each individual song and I could tell you, Oh yeah, no, that's a, that's a five out of six song or that's a five out of six song or six out of six song. Um, but taking the whole album as a whole and sitting down for the 53 minutes or roughly that it runs and listening to it start to finish by about halfway through it, I was just mentally drained. And because it didn't energize me or didn't make me like excited for the album to loop back to the start and play again, uh, I got to say, this is a three out of six album for me. Uh -huh. um, each individual song is better than that, but the experience as a whole is just not to my liking. Oh, very interesting. Not what I was expecting. Three out of six. I, I mean, that's the thing about when you rate these things, you have to do it honestly. And if it's not for you, well, and it's just not for you, you know? As I was thinking this through, I was thinking about last week where the music really wasn't for you and you only liked like 38% of uh, George Strait's yeah. music. Um, yeah. I can, I appreciate every song on this album there is one song that i really don't like so i'm looking forward to that segment in a minute yeah but yeah, yeah. i can appreciate the artistry in every song and i believe every song is a great song on its own but in an hour-long block of just listening to bob dylan whine and moan about his life it's just too much for me yeah yeah i can definitely understand that i had a very different opinion well, let's hear your <laughs> opinion because i am excited so for me, Blood on the Tracks wound up being a gem in the truest sense of the word. It was gorgeous to behold from a distance at a casual listen. Uh, but then it was more fascinating the more I looked at it uh, for all the facets there were to it. There are moments of this album that I am sure uh, reflect a very specific twist of the knife or a moment of ecstasy for Bob Dylan uh, but I can overlay all those moments over top of my own life and really identify with what he's saying because I see those things for myself and it looks familiar. Um, and I think the musicianship of this album has aged better, better than some of Dylan's detractors kind of thought it would. Uh, I think those people underestimated 
the like real scrappy kind of slapdash spirit that rock and roll continues to have. Um, and where you found Dylan's yowling to be understandably grating, um, I kind of felt the heart in it. Um, it felt as true as cruising down a highway, holding somebody's hand, um, or burning the shirt and guitar strap they bought you in a fire pit with some sympathetic friends. You know who you are. <laughs> She's probably not listening. Um, and if I have one qualm with this album, it's the inclusion of one song, which we might have the same opinion on. I'm not sure. I, I'll go over it in our uh, favorite, least favorite track. Um, but I don't know. I really love this record. And for the inclusion of only one track, uh, I have to ding it a string. So for me, this is a five out of six strings album. Uh, firing as close to all cylinders as you can get without all cylinders, basically. Which is pretty cool considering half the album was re-recorded right before it was released. Um, yeah, that that still blows my mind that, and I mean, he he's, Bob Dylan's a guy with gumption, you know, yeah. so it doesn't surprise me, but it just surprises me how good the result is that this didn't wind up being his like worst record because like, a week or two from release. It was like, you know what? Forget this. We're going to do this a different way. Well, and I'll admit, I make it a point not to read your reviews of an album while I'm writing mine. Uh, we work from the same show doc and I try to kind of stick to my section of it and not look at what you've done. And hearing you read your review kind of has opened my eyes to a couple of other things about this album. And so I'll be honest, I'll probably listen to this one again. I'll give it some time to kind of, sit in the back of my mind and marinate a little bit. And, you know, maybe I'll bump that up in the future. Maybe if we keep a database of our, our scores on something, maybe we'll see it amended down the road. <laughs> well, if you do, that's great, but don't feel any pressure from me. Cause I, I, I don't even know what to compare Bob Dylan to like what kind of food he would be. I don't know if he's <laughs> like grilled asparagus or sauerkraut or what, but he is an acquired taste. It is not somebody that you just drop on at a party and be like, oh, yeah, let's listen to the new Bob Dylan record. Absolutely. Well, that said, I need to know what your favorite track was and what your least favorite track was on this album. So my favorite track, the, the song that I alluded to at the beginning of the episode that really sucked me into this album was Simple Twist of Fate. Um, it's a song that I, th I am pretty positive has been covered by a lot of different people. Um, but just the tone of it, the wistful sadness, uh, the descending chord progression in the verse, which I, I'm not going to get too like music theory deep on y'all, but it's, um, the same chord that starts from like major moves down to like major seven down into dominant seven. And it's just the movement of one note through this chord with Dylan's vocal over top of it. That is just heartbreaking. Um, and the thing I kind of discovered recently listening to it is that the baseline for that song is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, some of the research I did, um, that was kind of from the myth making side of things and not the informed like Jeff Slate take um, said that the basis 
was the only one that could hang with what Dylan was doing. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's true on this track. He is <laughs> fantastic. Um, and I always, I see a movie in my head every time I hear this song. I can picture, you know, this guy waking up in the hotel room and the woman he's had the uh, one night stand with is gone. And he kind of talks about, you know, them being born at different times and just not, you know, kind of love that will never happen because they're not on the same page. Um, so that was my favorite song was okay. Simple Twisted Fate. My least favorite song is Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Because um, some of Dylan's like long rambling story songs bore me to tears mm -hmm. i find them kind of impenetrable uh like the music never changes and that song specifically has like that kind of oompa like boom 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 the whole way and it might make me a philistine for not getting it but i just don't get it <laughs> yeah definitely well for me my favorite track uh by a nose i mean really close uh between Simple Twist of Fate and Shelter from the Storm. Uh, the one that just really opens my heart, though, is Shelter from the Storm. There's mm, something about yes. there's something about the imagery in that that I just saw immediately the first time I listened to this song years and years and years ago, and it's really stuck with me. And so when this album came up, I'll be honest, um, I'm pretty sure this is the only song that I knew for certain was on this album. And so that was oh, one of really? those things that I was really kind of got excited about was, oh, we're going to do the album that has shelter from the storm. So that's my favorite song. Um, it just speaks to me and it speaks uh, a lot to my relationship with my wife, Tiffany, um, as yeah. far as yeah. kind of the way I see her as my refuge, my, my shelter from the storm. And so it just mm -hmm. really is a, a great song from that perspective. My least favorite song, and it has to do with his vocals in the chorus, because it just grates on me, is the idiot wind. Uh, <laughs> I just, it sticks with me, and I find myself just walking around going, the idiot wind, over and over and over again. Yes. I hate that song. Like, it drives yeah. me nuts. And I get what the messaging was. I understand how bitter and upset he was. When you just read the liner, the the words are good, his delivery is horrible. <laughs> yeah, his um, his words read well on the page. The Consequence of Sound podcast, which, like, we don't have any affiliation. We're not sponsored. But I recommend if y'all are interested in uh, a super deep dive on this album, check it out. Because one of the things they talk about is how Dylan wrote words that read really well. And so it's kind of an unfortunate thing, I think, in some ways that his vocals were as kind of um, hard to get into because the Idiot Wind is a great song. It's, a, it's actually a song that I think Leonard Cohen said was the one song that he just wishes he had written. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I, dude, I get it. Like, 
It, I didn't just immediately love Dylan's voice in this album. There were a lot of other things that got me into it, but that song specifically too is kind of a um, a uh, really oh, what is it, like really guilty of that crime. I'll yeah. Say. Well, well, the one thing that really bugs me about that song more than his delivery is just how and we've used this word a couple of times, but I can't think of a better one at the moment, how incongruent the music is from the mm-hmm. lyrics. And so if you're just like listening to the music and dealing with his, you know, botched delivery of the lyrics, it sounds like a pretty happy song. And then uh-huh. when you read the liner and realize what he's actually saying, it's like, why couldn't you perform this song, even the same music, but in a down key or slow it down a little or do something that made it sound a little bit more realistic with the message you were sending, it yeah. wouldn't have been so bad in my eyes, but it just doesn't work. And I, not to belabor the point, cause I've already kind of been mean to this <laughs> album. Just not for me at all. Hey, if it's not for you, it's <laughs> not for you. I get it. Well, we have, um, we have kind of blown on the winds of idiocy ourselves. So why don't you consult that most wise Oracle? Maybe we can get some enlightenment on what our next album is going to be. All right, here we go. Number 11. Oh yeah. We're just keeping up the double albums. Uh, Seems like my yes. list is double album central. Number 11 is the 2006 Red Hot Chili Peppers album, Stadium Arcadium. Yes. Oh, man. I, if, I don't know about you, but this album was probably the most important album to me in junior year and senior year of high school. So I, me and our mutual friend, uh, Paul, he was, he was able to play the guitar part from Snow and I still can't like John Frusciante is a bad mamma jamma. And this whole album is basically like guitar tone porn. It is so good. Let alone the rest of it being really amazing, but I'm excited about next week's. I'm always excited about it. every week. I say that I'm excited. I'm excited about it too. And this is an album I just got on vinyl like two weeks ago. It's still in cellophane. So I will be listening to it in the pure. Well, don't, don't throw your back out moving it. Cause that is a hefty album. It's like, is it, is it four discs? It's four discs Ugh. and it's in a really great book with liner notes. It's, it's going to be a great experience for me. Awesome. Chris, I'm excited for you. We will see you next week, man. I had a great time. Yeah, me too. See y'all. <laughs>